From the UCHRI podcast, this is Allison Anunziata, Research Programs Manager. Since its founding, UCHRI has funded residential research groups for faculty and graduate students to engage in collaborative work around a specific topic. In spring 2019, the topic was truth, broadly conceived. UCHRI welcomed convener Aaron James in philosophy at UC Irvine and participants Wayne Spencer Coffey in history of consciousness at UC Santa Cruz, Robin Derby in history at UCLA, Lauren Moore in comparative literature at UC Irvine, Palumi Saha in English at UC Berkeley, and Abigail Stepnitz in jurisprudence and social policy, also at UC Berkeley. The following is an intimate look into one of their weekly interdisciplinary seminars held here at UCHRI, featuring a conversation that weaves together a myriad of conspiracy theories and considers the implications of the genre in relation to fact-finding, subjective truths, and cultural mythologies. Take a listen. talking about our favorite conspiracy theories and what we think is really interesting about them. Abigail, what's your favorite? My favorite conspiracy theory or set of conspiracy theories are those adhered to by the sovereign citizens. Um, so I should, I should start by saying that they are, they are regarded as an extremist movement and they do resort to violence sometimes and the movement has some really disturbing, problematic roots in, in racism. Um, so it, it does occupy a kind of complicated complicated political and legal space. But um, on the surface, sovereigns basically believe that the U.S. isn't actually a country. It was a corporation that was created by the Constitution. Um, but states are countries. So they, under, they recognize each state government as being fairly legitimate, but even within that, they think that there's quite a lot of flexibility about which laws they should have to follow and which they don't have to follow. So a very favorite sovereign citizen tactic, for example, is to, um, is to decide that when they are in their car operating their vehicle, that they are not driving, they're traveling, because driving has to do with commerce and all of a sudden the government can be involved in regulating commerce and interstate commerce, but people who as private citizens are merely traveling from point A to point B don't need to have license plates, don't need to have driver's licenses, don't need to register their vehicles, don't need to comply with instructions from highway patrol or anything like that because they're not driving, they're traveling. and so the, there's a lot about the theory that has to do with kind of parsing terms and ideas um, in a way that is really interesting. Um, so yeah, they reject, they reject all forms of federal control. They also believe that at some point in the early stages of the Republic, the common law was secretly replaced by admiralty law and the law of the sea. And so they see indicators of this in really specific places. For example, um, if they go into a courtroom or any other kind of official government space where there's a flag that has gold fringe on the edges, they take that as a sign that it's an admiralty flag, not a normal flag, um, and that that means that they are being subject to a law that they shouldn't have to be subject to because originally they were free. And in America, they should be free. Uh, And it's this kind of fake corporatized admiralty law system that's keeping them down. When do they come into existence? Uh, pretty early. Uh, there are, there are, even going back to kind of the 1920s and 30s, there are people who became extremely suspicious of um, the, the shift away from the gold standard. And so a lot of it has roots in kind of economic concerns about economic disadvantage. And I think, you know, to, to, to give them not necessarily credit, but to try to kind of recognize where some of it comes from that's a little bit more understandable, I suppose, you know, it's not, it's not hard to imagine that there were a bunch of kind of dispossessed people following the crash who wanted to know how the country could be so wealthy and they could be so poor, right? And so I, I think some of it comes from looking around and thinking, this isn't the promise of America that I was given, especially for, uh, for white men who make up a big, a big part of this population. Um, 
so yeah, they also they also believe that um, birth certificates create secret accounts, and that the government is actually putting money in the secret account, but that's very hard for you to access. Uh, some of this has to do with um, not, it's kind of like not knowing a code, right? They think that if they could crack the code, they would be able to access all this money. There seems to be questions of like interpretation, which are interesting. Your former example of you know driving versus traveling, it mm. seems like that's, how does one, it seems interesting that, uh, that these figures are interested in how uh, how do you read something? How like, do you see? What do you see when you see? I, I just see a normal flag, but there's actually something—a code. There's something if you read deeper, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. That uh, one can like find a truth that it exists underneath, which is yeah. interesting, for sure. Yeah. But this is a common feature of conspiracy theory writ large, right? That yeah. like in some ways, conspiracy theorists believe themselves to have in their hands a cipher. Mm -hmm. the, night that the, the rest world, of us. the world is encoded. Um, and what appears to those who don't have the cipher as traffic lights for someone who does is actually evidence of, you know, government control, whatever. So, it, I mean, so much of the conspiracy theories seem to be about interpretation because that's what makes a, a group of conspiracy theorists, this belief that you have a kind of shared way of reading by virtue of breaking a code, it's not just a shared way of reading, but like that you're able to see something or understand something that is obscure to everybody else. That, that part of conspiracy theories strikes me, especially in the American context, as almost a kind of secular religion mm. because it's about you know, interpreting these hidden clues and sort of weaving them together into something meaningful. It's a kind of almost religious impulse. Mm. It assumes an ideal, right? Like a plan in the in the sense of some something right. that lies beyond, not right. just underneath, but is somehow kind of transcendent. Decide that actually maybe there's a way we can crack this, right? Um, because all these people come in with their fancy degrees and they speak fancy words and those words seem to accomplish things. And if we can come in and just arrange things in the right order, we will crack the code. That's super interesting, Abigail. I think I have the complementary conspiracy because I'm obsessed with the Illuminati, mm. who are, of course, a global power that has access to precisely, it would seem, what sovereign citizens think is being denied them. Yes. Um, and I, the Illuminati is fascinating because of the reason I asked the question of when did the sovereign citizens come into being, because they have, on the <coughs> one hand, there's a kind of concrete historical life to the Illuminati, which it's not just Jay-Z and Beyonce, in fact, the Illuminati was an actual organization started in 1776 in Germany um, that was mostly, well, if everyone would, anyone who's actually worked on the Illuminati would say they've actually been eradicated, but this idea of a new world order in which um, there is a code, but that code is not available to everybody. It's not just having a cipher because you're an ordinary person who understands you're being denied access, but rather that the world works to deny everybody access to this code and only gives it to a select few who understand the true purpose of life. And the Illuminati is really interested in things like state power, mm -hmm. the abuse of the state power. So they believe that states can't be trusted, but we don't turn then to like some like lower or smaller locality Instead, you have a global apparatus mm. of the super wealthy. Um, and the contemporary form of the Illuminati that's gotten a lot of uh, popularity is, on the one hand, hip-hop culture, um, Kanye, Jay-Z, and Beyonce as representatives of the Illuminati because certainly they all play with um, the iconography of the Illuminati um, and certainly play with exactly this fear, right, that they come into power, that they have this unbelievable wealth because of something more than hard work, talent, mm. and late capital. Mm -hmm. um, but then the other side of the Illuminati is secret banking society, uh, uh, secret banking groups, um, uber-wealthy capitalists who live in a bunker in Switzerland. Um, 
and that all of these people who would have nothing in common otherwise, culturally or socially, actually meet regularly and decide the course of global events. So it's like big theory mm. versus like local conspiracy theory. Crazy mm. are huge, but the kind of classic members of the Illuminati are popes, mm. um, the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds. Um, so they're the people who seem to have visible power. Mm. And this is the thing, it's making sense of visible power in some ways, mm -hmm. right? And that visible power has material effects in the world. That there are people who affect whose money and influence affects things like markets. This is true, but not probably in the kind of direct way of the Illuminati meeting in a bunker in Switzerland. Probably. 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 I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Was J.P. Morgan rumored to be an Illuminati? I'm sure. I mean, there are, there are lots of books on the Illuminati. Um, the really interesting thing is that there's all these, like, you know, groups of people who um, were important to finance um, and who set up all kinds of philanthropic foundations in, like, the 19th century um, who are seen as kind of, like, early people who announced themselves in the Illuminati. The famous one is Cecil Rhodes. Oh. Um, and so... The other thing that Illuminati cri critics will talk about is the kind of dark side of philanthropy. This is the thing. So you have capital on the one hand, like you have like kind of accumulist industrial capital on the other hand. The other thing they're skeptical of is like philanthropy, which often also ends up in institutions of higher education. So there's a way in which like questions of ideology and who, like what you learn and what gets um, promoted and funded is, is actually linked to you know, people in, in power. So this is, this is one way to think about um, also a, a form of conspiracism that cuts across what we might think of as right and left because mm. the people in the Illuminati are often in various different political wings, but they're gathered together by their enormous wealth and, and influence. Global events. It's almost like a conspiracy theory that took the place of what could have been class consciousness in this country. <laughs> That's exactly what it is, actually. Also, how American to decide to have a conspiracy theory instead of class consciousness, right? It just yeah. feels but so accurate. From Germany, right? I mean, the thing is, like, you have, but to, in take 1776. Yeah, you have to take a dead thing in Germany mm. and resurrect it mm. as a thing that has changed the course of American history. Um, but certainly, there's. I mean, there are lots of different people who kind of trace the Illuminati, again, from really different places. So you have people who are obsessed with hip-hop culture, who are listening to every album, every yeah. B-side, every concert recording, not just by Jay-Z and Kanye, but every one of their protégés, anyone that, um, that they've, pr they've produced, that they've written for. And you, they're reading so closely, right? Symbols, um, allusions. I mean, this is like kind of high literary analysis happens um, in the analysis of the Illuminati because they're able to trace kind of symbols and their different appearances um, in these ways where people become fluent in a language of the Illuminati and they're able to produce a narrative where they can say for certain that this is what a song is actually saying. It often is supposed to predict a world event or um, announce the influence on a prior world event. So you have those people, then you have a kind of more standard Reddit online, um, white conspiracy theorists who see global conspiracy in the form of Jewish bankers um, and a kind of global liberal elite are they mostly American? Uh, Illuminati conspiracy theories? As yeah. far as I can tell, yes. Okay. But I, I think it'll be interesting to see as, I mean, hip-hop culture is now global culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, whether or not that will track, especially also as like the uber-wealthy is also a very global formation, yeah. right? Um, and certainly one of the other features of the Illuminati is interest in especially Saudi oil money. Um, which is also tied into like all kinds of fetishization of hip hop and blackness, and mm. um, you know, and like the weird overlap of things. The other kind of weird imagery that appears in Illuminati stuff is like um, keeping 
big cats as pets, you know, which is like, a, it, it's like a whole thing where the appearance, like people who have like leopards and tigers, again, you have to be uber wealthy, but this is like often a sign, like it's a way of signaling um, our relationship to the Illuminati and like that you belong to the Illuminati because this is one marker of your, your power in the world. I think, um, Abigail, what you said about um, how this um, displaces class consciousness um, is really interesting. Also because, you know, instead of seeing a system that is wrong, we're seeing evil individuals mm-hmm. who are kind of, have these malicious intentions behind the scenes. So it, it individualizes and makes it about... Um, a moral disposition yeah. as opposed to a kind of a systemic, I don't know, let's call it injustice. Mm-hmm. Um, and additionally, there is a race component to it that it kind of gets wrapped up in this, um, in this um, transposition of um, responsibility, which is really, really interesting. So mm-hmm. both in the, in the sense that it resonates with kind of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. but also this obsession with, you know, Jay-Z, for instance, is yeah. not unrelated to questions of race, I think. I do, but you know, the Illuminati have a religious origin, because... Oh, well, why don't you tell us about their religious origin? I mean, yeah. I just Googled it. It's not something that I know at the top of my head, but it's kind of incredible that, well, the, the, the real thing that happened in, like, uh, whatever, the 18th century um, is happening in a Jesuit university, but then it also has a precursor in the form of a 16th century sect of Spanish heretics who claim special religious enlightenment. So there is, um, you know, there's strangely some kind of a supposed religious origin to this whole idea of, yeah. Illuminati. I mean, the Illuminati also now, like, one of the other panics is, like, about them as Satan worshippers, right? That the other... Because perhaps the thing that actually can tie all of these different things that they're not is that they're not true Christians, right? So and have they? They've kind of sold their souls for material wealth, maybe. Oh, devil's yes. 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 yes, but the question of I wonder if I don't know if they've sold their souls, but there is also a kind of strange language of like predestination. These are chosen people too. I think it's interesting that uh, both of these uh, issues have been questions of interpretation, but. This and uh, Paloma, your example is that we can see uh, examples of this sort of covert thing and something like mass culture, right? That you know, some songs that billions of people have listened to, right? If you have the cipher, you can sort of get at it. Whereas, sort of the language of the law is a bit more specialized, or the there's a way in which uh, that's like a like a different mode of interpretation. It's a little bit more uh, like hermetic, a little bit more. You know, I'm I'm here with my 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 legal books, sort of going that this is what this you know that the the. Uh, vowel consonant consonant like that's a it's a very different kind of reading but it is I think kind of congruent in some ways. Question right it's like this might go back to this question of the of the secular and the sacred that the conspiracy theories do a kind of work mm-hmm. of of offering faith, um, which is hard then to want to not believe in, and also makes it impossible to argue against them. Mm-hmm. What's your conspiracy theory, Robin? Well, my conspiracy theory um, is going to take us outside of the United States. Um, Excellent. So I did um, I did inner uh, oral histories with Haitians who had um, survived a massacre in 1937, um, and what was really interesting to me is that the Haitians had this conspiracy theory ex- explaining the ra- rationale behind the massacre that the, none of the Dominicans had. So, um, so I I, th- I found this really intriguing, and the 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 story that they said they gave me for why the massacre took place sounds a little fanciful, but what was intriguing to me was when I actually did dug a little bit, I found out that there are elements of truths in this fanciful story. So the story was that Trujillo, Rafael Trujillo, the dictator of the Dominican Republic, who lasted from 1930 to 1961, and who um, he he he. Um, Gave these he gave orders in 1937 to have all the Haitians who had who were living in the border regions ethnic Haitians because they were born Dominican. Mm-hmm. Um, they'd been in the, the Dominican Republic for several generations. But he um, he he the army gave out machetes and he and he asked them that they would be massacred. Um, 
So the, the story that the Haitians had was that Trujillo had wanted to buy the citadel. The citadel is an enormous fort that after the Haitian Revolution was built by the um, founding fathers, Jean-Jacques de Salines and, um, and the, uh, you know, the, the winners, the leaders who brought the Haitian Revolution to independence. Um, so in 1804, they built this fortress, um, which was intended to enable the Haitian uh, political elite to make sure that the, uh, you know, they had just whooped the uh, armies of Spain and England and France. Um, and there had been multiple efforts to reclaim Haitian independence. So, so this story was kind of a, it, it struck me as pretty fanciful, that he wanted to buy the Citadel. But when I started, and um, when I started unpacking it, there were some interesting threads that made a lot of sense. One of which was Trujillo did have imperial ambitions, actually, and he started suborning the Haitian president to take over. Um, then he started suborning some of his political opposition to take over. Trujillo was he was a master of subterfuge. He paid after the massacre. He paid off the um, Republican congressman Ham Hamilton Fish to defend Trujillo in con U.S. Congress. Like, the guy was full of subterfuge. Um, so that's one factor. But then, uh, it, when I started thinking about the, the, the other aspect of this story, which is about Trujillo's subterfuge, but it's also about theft, trying to steal the nation. I mean, above and beyond the fact that, yes, there were multiple interventions and, as the um, you know, various armies of Europe tried to take back Haiti, which had been the jewel in the crown of the French Empire. You could trace it to that. But, um, but, but I think it also has to do with a kind of phobia about, about national theft that, has, that, that could be seen in two examples. One of which was after the Haitian Revolution, um, Haiti had to pay an indemnity to France for the slave capital lost. Um, so they paid this debt, with, um, this, uh, it's called the odious debt, Haitians called the odious debt. They were paying France into until 1947 which is kind of shocking. It's the only case where someone who won the war had to pay an indemnity. All right, um, and it's kind of shocking when you think about Haiti paying the government of France for uh, over 100 years. Anyway, um, not quite 100 years, but anyway. So that's one story, but then another, so then I'm, I'm thinking about the, the, these stories of hate that Haitians tell about um, you know, other countries trying to take over their national treasure, and I came across this other story, which, um, which uh, an American anthropologist in, in Haiti, Zora Neale Hurston, picked up in the, in the 1940s, which was, they said that, the, um, that in, there had been, in the early part of the 20th century, a, a underground tunnel built from Wall Street to Port-au-Prince to siphon the gold from the National Bank. And I was like, okay, this sounds like it's nuts. But what I discovered was, it was true. So Citibank, when they took over the, the um, National Bank of Haiti, um, there was one point where there was a political scuffle which involved uh, a murder, and they got very upset about the national gold. So they actually removed all the gold from the coffers of the National Bank of Haiti and brought it to Wall Street for safekeeping, which you can imagine was rather disturbing to Haitians. That gold, by the way, is still, still there underground under the New York Federal Reserve Building. It has no connection to the monetary system, but the gold stockpiles are, are still sitting there. There in Fort Knox still has gold. It, again, it has no monetary significance, but it's still there because it's hard to move. <laughs> this is not a surprise to anyone who's seen National Treasure. <laughs> <laughs> we all know exactly what happens at the end. Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, that comment is very interesting because there's a lot of American rumors about gold. So, and it did, it does make, it, I, it, I thought maybe Haitians were picking up on some of these other gold rumors, but in fact, there's, there's a large kernel of truth here um, in the history of Citibank's uh, takeover of Haiti. But another thing that has intrigued me about Haiti is that the way Haitians understand politics is they presume treachery and conspiracy. They presume um, that politicians are doing things behind the scenes, and I've thought about this in relation to you know, um, a, a political uh, worldview that, you know, presumes that there are spirits everywhere. So there's a kind of, you know, it's a kind of like the political imaginary seems to reflect their religious imaginary. So in that sense, it's a little different from the American rumors, 
because American uh, because Haitians presume that there are, you know, that spirits are um, have agency, shall we say, in ways that um, that might be kind of imprinting their understanding of politics. So that's my favorite, my favorite um, conspiracy theory. But and the thing that I find it so intriguing is that it, it struck me as completely fanciful when I first hear, heard it. And as I dug, I began to find that actually there were kernels of truth, like the gold. Who knew? Can I share mine? Yeah, please so, do. Yeah, my it it, actually, it relates to gold and money, um, uh, but but the start start of it goes to. Um, Outer space. <laughs> so there's a connection. So this is my this is my mother is really interested in this. Um, uh, I call it conspiracy theory. She calls it uh, information that she she sees on YouTube. I don't I don't think she would mind talking about me talking about it this too. By the way, um, but I've had some interesting conversations with her about it, and I'll tell her like as she as she thinks of it. But so the thought is that there's um, there's going to be something like an energy pulse coming from outer space that has an effect on our banking system such that um, I think maybe there's some legislative changes automatically and then in, but institutionally the banks change are changed so that we all get money and then lines of credit too for doing productive things so that you can go to the bank and get things but there's a basic amount of money that's available and then there's money available for doing nice things so um, and um, uh, so there's a weird um, and so the, the origin of it, and, and that so in some sense my mother's interested in this because she's waiting for the money, and it has, it has a kind of spiritualistic tinge to it because it was popularized by this, this uh, woman named Shani Kimis Goodwin online who, who initially traveled as under the heading of the Dove of Oneness. So it's kind of like a spiritualistic um, kind of thing, and it's associated with a lot of other big theories about spiritual goings-on out in the universe. Um, but then there's this monetary uh, side to it. And that goes back to um, the 1990s when a guy named uh, Harvey Francis Barnard like, could, came up with a kind of policy paper, which was, among other, monetary, among other reforms, was trying to bring us back to a gold standard or a modified gold standard. So it was sort of concerned about the monetary system and trying to bring back this earlier time. Um, and then, um, but then it, it, it sort of did, it never went anywhere. And then it was he he sent it around to the whole Congress, and they didn't pay any attention to it. But then that then conspiratorial thinking started going on about maybe it was the Illuminati that people were ignoring it. You know, they were sidelining it, suppressing this good idea. And then the Dove of Oneness character like picked up on that and, and then really popularized um, um, the idea. Uh, but it, I mean, it's fascinating to me because it it taps into like it's this weird connection between money and um, and spirituality, but the, the link there is is something like a religious interest in hope, mm -hmm. I think, yeah. It's a sense of the universe, that the universe is benevolent and good, mm -hmm. and that it's going to impact my life in a way that I can be hopeful for and look forward to. I can, I'm going to have more money so I can have better health, so I can have a mm -hmm. um, less, you know, I can worry less about the end of my life, and, um, you know, uh, and so it, it's kind of like the appeal for a lot of people of, 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 of religious faith. Um, is now, you know, interpreted now not sort of within sort of traditional monotheistic <laughs> terms or even like pantheistic terms, but this this claims about what's going on in the solar system and then and then how it's going to affect our banking system in concrete ways. The two details that that jumped out at me. One was the dove of oneness. I mean, the dove, of course, is a symbol of the Holy Ghost, and so that's a kind of religious element. And the other, the pulse. Because which reminds me of um, a certain uh, certain elements of spiritualism, um, you know, astral projection and the aura, the kind of, but in a, um, but of course taking it into, into outer space is a little bit of an extension there. But that also reminded me of you know another kind of secular secular religion. Mm -hmm. So yeah. interesting. I think another interesting thing is that how. You were sort of describing how this sort of taps into like a very real thing, even though this is sort of a very astral kind of, uh, literally outer space kind of thing. That there is something that is like, like anxiety over the end of life, anxiety over financial precarity, etc. How that can like, these desires can have a like a material uh, kind of remedy. Like the 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 beam is going to come and it's going to give me you know hard cash dollars. Uh, the the idea that you get the answer to um, 
something immaterial like anxiety has, has a remedy that can be like actually materialized. I think that's interesting as well. And also that the aliens, or not the aliens, the, the pulse from outer space is going to work within the current system. It's yes. not going to eradicate the banks. Yes. It's not yeah. going to delete everyone's credit score magically and oh. delete everyone's student debt and hospital bills. It's not going to get rid of it. It's just going to give you a leg up in the current system, which we're not going to theorize is totally fucked and designed to kill you anyway. There's like a like. It's almost like a. It's a. It's. Those setting those parameters on the theory itself in some ways uh, like preserves a kind of like like rational rationality, right? Like it's not, I I don't think that it's going to be you know er- eradicate everything, but the, you know it's going to go, you know there are, you know there there are rules, right? Um, it's not as if uh, say there would be instead of like the answer being something like. Uh, Again, class consciousness or like the uh, the overthrow of capitalism or something. But you no, know, this will work within capitalism. You know, this, we can't go too far here. The outer space, fine. The overthrow of capitalism. Uh, Steady on. I don't know. Steady on. I don't know about that. I had this really fun. I had this fun conversation with my mom, um, saying, "Well, let's let's think about how this would work, the mechanism, because there's one way institutionally it could work pretty easily because it, it wouldn't be that difficult for." I mean, we could all be given money by the government or by, say, paid for by the Fed in the same way that uh, we build aircraft carriers. That is, Congress decides, let's have another aircraft carrier, or let's pay everybody a basic income grant. Um, the Treasury then um, organizes a budget and then either sends out checks or, or instructs the, the Fed, the central bank, to discredit uh, bank accounts. Like, that's, that's how government, all government spending already works. That's how the aircraft carrier gets built. And you can do, just by a political decision, we could have the basic income payment. So in some sense, all the, the only thing that stands between us and the world that she's imagining where we get this free money is just a political mm. decision, yeah. right? But that sort of, in her vision, that sort of dropped out and it's turned into this impersonal sort of um, benevolent force, you know, that, that just causes the whole thing to happen. But the institutional mechanisms aren't, aren't necessarily wrong. You know? That impersonal force is as impersonal as the government is, right? I mean, isn't that part uh, of what makes this compelling is like, if the government is also entirely opaque, you know, you know that this is how a government funds aircraft carriers and could fund a universal basic income, but I would imagine that most people who would believe in this don't know that, right? So how the government funds things, what, what happens to money, is utterly opaque. So why not, and, and also withholding, right? That's the other thing that the government is. It's opaque and withholding. Yeah. So you could have something that's also opaque, but generous. And, like, so there's a way in which it is maybe the vastness of the government or global financial capital that makes conspiracy theories work, right? Because they seem to work just like this other massive, all-encompassing, utterly improbable thing. Whereas the problem of rationalism is we're like, but no, actually, it's not improbable, like this is how a market works, and this is the history of banking. But if you don't know that, if you don't want to know that, then these two things are kind of equivalent. Yeah, and in fact, there's not even there's not even an established body of elite knowledge about how the monetary system works, because a lot of professional economists don't really think about money and banking and, and, and say all kinds of uh, mistaken things just about the operational realities. Yeah. Um, they'll turn to talk about models, or, and in fact, major economic models just leave out money and banking entirely. They call it a veil for the real economy and they don't think it matters. And, um, and so if that's true among, like, this is true of major universities, like, now everyone else, you know, I mean, there's just, despite being a democracy where we're supposed to understand, like, what we're doing together and how our institutions work, I mean, it's, it's in this deep uncertainty, deep lack of understanding about how money and banking system work. And it's still very much tied with the ideas of the gold standard. That's the thing people feel like they have the clearest idea about. Money is something, and it's got to be based on something, and it shouldn't. Isn't that something gold? And um, um, but it's it's not. <laughs> um, and it, there was a gold standard, but that was that ended. Uh, you know, in 1933, when FDR took the dollar off domestic convertibility um, for for gold for dollars, and then you know finally in 1971, Nixon finally kicked us, kicked the world off the Bretton Woods version of the gold standard. So now it's been a long time. You know, money is just is fiat money. But that's a hard thing to understand and get your head around how it works. And so, yeah, no wonder 
Um, um, it's ripe for people just, you know, having their own, coming up with their own ideas. No wonder people are attracted to some kind of interpretive frame that may, helps them feel like they can get, get a grip on this really basic part of all of our lives that's shaping our lives materially, you know, and, and our futures materially, our health and de life and death and, and really concrete ways. It's funny you mentioned Ronald Reagan because my my theory is basically it goes it's a little older it goes back to this this idea that sort of the, either the CIA or the government in general sort of uh, invented crack cocaine and so distributed oh, yeah. it into yeah. African American neighborhoods and so one of the things I'm interested in is how something that we would say some part of the story that might be we would say that would be fanciful or over the top like say for example that the fact that there are six letters in all of Ronald's Reagan's names, Ronald Wilson Reagan, means that he is in fact the devil in some way, the 666 kind of thing. Um, I'm indebted to uh, the work of Patricia Turner um, in this regard uh, and on her book on rumor in African American culture. Um, I'm interested in how this idea denotes a kind of truth about, say, the neglect of African American neighborhoods on uh, the over-policing of African American neighborhoods and how and how it cuts not simply uh, it's not simply sort of a material condition but also a cultural condition. One of the things that Turner turns up that I really like is that um, how there was uh, on say television in the 1980s in the early 1990s uh, the crack cocaine was sort of uh, spun as sort of a uh, like a scourge of black people. This is what was going on when you know sort of drug use is sort of like remains uh, sort of largely equal among you know sort of racial groups and so uh, I th think it's interesting that it's this also has a cultural valence that it would make sense to have this feeling of conspiracy if you look on television and see only black people doing crack cocaine, but then you see when you like the the drug market being very much driven not simply by African Americans but by you know all um, all Amer um, all American racial groups, um, and so I think I'm interested in how this is again this isn't the this isn't closing down like knowledge it's very much producing a new way of understanding what is an actual kind of material condition which is some sort of systemic neglect of uh, urban neighborhoods um, and so I think it's I don't know that that's that's my uh, I, I I'm also interested in it because it continues to have uh, it, it cuts both ways historically it still has relevance now uh, but also the theory is a little bit older, so one of the things that Turner does that's incredible is that she collects stuff from older African Americans that say, well, I felt that way about heroin, right? That, that, that this, was, this was something that was introduced in the community to systematically rob us of our creative people, of, our, of whomever, right? So this idea that uh, the drug itself can change historically, but the pervasive condition of... Uh, the systemic decay of urban Ameri uh, urban black America is something that is maintained, but we have we can have different explanations for for this as well. Um, so yeah, that's that's uh, I I'm very interested in this because I think it's still it's a very it's a way again of saying that there's a knowledge that only comes from living in these neighborhoods themselves and understanding what it's like from within as opposed to. Uh, like news coverage, etc. That there is a that if you live in these neighborhoods, it does seem like there's a thing that you can understand that you can't get from sort of hysterical news coverage of the crack cocaine ep epidemic. So how does this theory travel then? Like, what is if if it is in some ways a seen as a kind of corrective to news coverage, yeah. right? Um, I'm just thinking of like the ways in which like now the term mainstream media is one that we've normalized. So how does then this theory travel? Is it word of mouth? Is there like a popular cultural element to it? Like how, how do people in the know know that this is what crack is doing? And, right? Like how, yeah. like how does it work? It seems and so it's to I feel like I should cite her. The Turner's argument is basically that it's her her method is collecting these sort of folk stories, right? And so for her it's it's a word of mouth tradition, right? It's a, again not knowledge that you can find in a book, not knowledge that you're going to see on the news, not knowledge that, you, that you know, uh, official government people are going to tell you, but it's a thing that you know, you're, at the, you're at the hairdresser, you're at the barber shop. These are, these are informal sites of knowledge production, I think. And I think it's, again, these are modes, knowledge that you don't have access to unless you are in these spaces, which I think is also interesting because even though you know, we can't really 
to prove anything like this, there is, I think, something. The uh, the effects of systemic urban decay are definitely material. This is a thing that you would, if you lived in these neighborhoods, that you would see on a regular basis. This is not like an abstract idea about neglect, um, which I, I think is interesting. I love that this is a, a it's a truth that doesn't need anyone else to verify it, yeah. right? Because in fact. The thing that would verify it, the state, you know, is the one that's pro- that is actually creating the, cool. the truth, right? Yeah, so I think that it, that's like kind of in some ways that's like a perfect conspiracy theory, because it's entirely self-contained. It refuses outside referent, huh? mm-hmm. right? And it depends on that. It depends on refusing it. Yeah. But I think <clears throat> this point is is an important one too, because you know when when you're just kind of learning about. Uh, conspiracy theories on the web, it's hard to see the sociology of, you know, of, of enunciation and who's, who is the speaking subject. And I think, you know, typically there are, there's a sociology to these kinds of, this kind of uh, rumor. And Pat, Patricia Turner's work kind of just really honing in on something which is, um, you know, a, a, an understanding of, of, of government which is shaped by d- d- decrepit material conditions and also a history of you know, Tuskegee experimentation and other kinds of... This is, yeah, this stuff has actually happened yeah, before. exactly, indeed. yeah. But, um, but it, the thing about studying the, these kinds of rumors is it's, sometimes it's hard to see the sociology of the community of believers um, if, you, if you, you know, and so I think her work is even more important because it's reminding us that we always need to take, try and figure that out. You know, who, who are the, the people who, who... What is the topography of belief? Or in how the, the, the fact that knowledge can be produced at a level that is not academic, that is not, oh, yeah. that is not within the sort of like the accepted modes of rationality. Because again, it does explain a truth that say um, simply an economic analysis of, of the hood c- couldn't get at, right? Mm-hmm. There's a way in which like there's something that is more day-to-day, more experiential, more phenomenological perhaps, th- that this theory... Uh, this conspiracy sort of illuminates that, uh, say, official quote-unquote knowledge can't really get at, or, or didn't get at, or is not really concerned with, ultimately. Right. I mean, because these, these are subjects that have been left behind and have been by design. Um, so th- there's a way in which I, I, I could see how an official explanation, uh, an academic explanation of this, or simply an academic explanation of this would be insufficient for understanding the level of hysteria around drug policy, drug enforcement, especially during that very uh, kind of heated time of the 1980s and the 1990s. Well, then there are other structural things to be pointed to as well, right? Like for a really long time, crack sentencing outpaced powdered cocaine sentencing by up to 100 to 1, right? So actually, you want another explanation for the, you know, the boom of mass incarceration? You know, and that, those sentencing guidelines are made by the state. That's not an accident. That's, there's know, nothing fanciful about there's that. There's no, exactly, there's no, there's no, there's no theory there. It might be uh, conspiracy, small racialized, small C conspiracy. Um, but it's not, it's not pretend, right? No. It's, there's no, it's, it's not about gold. It's about actual number of years spent in prison. Yes, you, you, you can watch, if you're within those communities, you sort of see an entire generation of people sort of disappear into mm. The prison, that's the thing that you, they're gone. There's nothing fanciful about, but it does seem the level of, the level of incarceration could, you, how do we explain this? This doesn't make any sense, you know? Yeah. yeah. So could we maybe talk about it um, more like a hyperbole or a kind of, mm. you know, mm. exaggeration or even just literary reframing of, of something that is, right, that is very, very, real yeah and so it's not even about the explanatory power it's about the effective um results of saying this is intentional by the state it's not just that this is happening but you know that there that let's take it a step forward and say you know no i think like like as we've all been sort of if we can all kind of have a like like a general theme is how these are kind of questions of interpretation i think one of the things that's important in this particular situation is how instead of, because the dominant narrative is one of, well, this is because this is a culture of laziness, this is a culture that doesn't want to work hard, but I think there's a way in which when you 
espouse instead a theory, this sort of top-down theory. You're taking back this agency as sort of a impoverished subject. It's like, no, this is not about some kind of uh, like transcendental fact of race. This is actually about something else. This is about like a thing that... Uh, so in this case, I think that you know, a way of... One of the ways this works, I think, on, on the day-to-day is that it kind of returns some agency to these subjects because it says, you know, this is not... There's nothing transcendentally wrong with me. Mm-hmm. There's something that is... Uh, this is, there's something that is wrong with the state, which again, even though this takes place, this is filtered through language that you know the six 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 thing, which is very fanciful, but that is a real. I think there's something I think that is really productive and uh, sort of almost affirming about saying that no, no, this is, there's nothing wrong with poor urban black culture. The the problem is from without. So even if the explanation from it being without is not one we would consider rational. That is, there's that is absolutely true. But is it that, that's that's my question? Is it not rational? Right, we saw something similar with the vampire stories in the sense that colonization was expropriating something to the level of mm-hmm. you know people losing their lives, right? Yeah. So you can just say that, which is very long and annoying to say, or you can talk about vampires, which you know is a, we can say a more literary way of putting it, yeah. but it is still referring to the same. Um, occurrence, right? And and it seems to be very similar here, where the state is responsible. Yes. Right? Sure. In one way or another, the state has a responsibility here. So saying that it, like literalizing it and saying that the state has put crack cocaine in neighborhoods. That has already gone further than, say, mainstream news coverage of the crack cocaine epidemic, right? Yeah. To sort of, to, to assign its responsibility to being at the level of the state and not at the level of, you know, unsavory individuals that, you know, uh, that are lazy and don't want to work, right? Because this is the, this is that was the dominant narrative, which is just as fanciful, I would but, say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a way in which that's it's also about politics, then, right? Because it's I mean, this is a form of what Simone Brown in Dark Matters absolutely calls surveillance, which is when the watch watch the watchers, right? That she talks about how uh, slavery has produced a form of surveillance of black bodies, but it wasn't simply this unidirectional thing where you had uh, you know, slaves and then former slaves and then the descendants of child slaves uh, who are the subjects of state surveillance. But in fact that there are forms in which they look back and they say, I see you. I see you looking at me. And by calling out this structure of surveillance, it's also a way of engaging with the state when otherwise the state seems to have this kind of enormous uh, force. Um, and so there's a way in which I think the story becomes a form of surveillance, right? Absolutely. We see you, state. Mm-hmm. We see what you're doing. Yes, we have to give it a term. Maybe it's allegory, right? Does it matter? We have to give it a story, but we see what you're doing. And we, so it's not an individual, yeah. we see it, we all believe it, we are all in the know, right? We become a kind of political community by sharing and repeating it. This is also how like a national myth works. Yeah. Um, and it becomes a way of engaging what is otherwise this unidirectional force of the state yes. on black communities. It's a, it's, a, I mean, it, this is, it's a brilliant way of thinking about um, the back and forth. What's also interesting is that then you have media, which would, which would say like, that's just a crazy story. Yes. So this is what's the, you know, it's not just a back and forth between black communities and the state, but then you have the ways in which this conspiracy theory, the reading of it becomes a way of being like, oh, who would believe that? Only a poorly educated black person living in the hood would believe that, right? So there's like a, another layer of the then. Right, and this who is... Who believes a, this story? It's another form of hierarchizing truth. Yes. Mm-hmm. And... Mm-hmm. This one is particularly racialized. So, you know, truth has to be a particular correspondence between reality and representation. It cannot be one where things are hyperbolic or literalized or, you know, we can call it, or allegorized, right? Because then you're just crazy, right? So there are, different, there are particular forms of representation that are called truth and are accepted, um, and others that are not, even though their explanatory power and their effective power makes a lot of sense, right? Yeah. Mm. Liron, we shouldn't uh, let you get away with not uh, well, <laughs> sharing your favorite conspiracy <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, it's just kind of in a whole other context, and 
Um, I'm not sure if there's a point of getting into it. So maybe, maybe we should actually just have. What if you just say what it is, and we if we okay. don't agree not to discuss it? Okay. So I was going to talk about um, the Yemenite children affair in Israel that I've mentioned to you before, I think, um, which is. Um, an affair that happened in the very late 40s and the early 50s after the establishment um, of the State of Israel where um, children were disappearing from um, families of um, newly arrived immigrants from um, Arab and Muslim countries who are Jewish themselves, um, and particularly um, for, from uh, Jewish families from Yemen. Um, and the numbers are kind of astonishing. Some estimations have it as um, one out of six kids was just taken. Um, the the routes through which the kids disappear were very, very similar. Mostly um, they disappeared out of hospitals or um, children's homes and transitional camps where the, um, the new immigrants were settled um, for a while. Um, and it took a while for the stories to kind of uh, come out and for families to realize that this has happened to their neighbors and that it's actually just a bigger thing than just what happened to them. Um, but there were several um, inquiry committees that were uh, established to look into this, um, to, into this affair. And it seems like a lot of uh, what was brought before those committees was itself buried. Um, the archive was sealed until this year, and even now, when some of it is available, um, it's so redacted that it's hard to tell what was really going on. Some of the really important documents just were burnt, mm. conveniently, which is just, you know, this is great for any conspiracy theory, when major documents just kind of disappear. Um, so, you know, what, what I find interesting about this story... Um, is that it's slightly different than what we were talking about uh, so far in the sense that there is that what stands at the center of current activism around this is precisely the desire that there will be a recognition by the state that this has happened. And not only that this has happened, but that this has happened by way of design, that this was systematic. Um, and so what it highlights is really the conspiracy aspect of the conspiracy theory. It really insists that it's not enough to recognize that kids have disappeared, but rather um, it's important to recognize the state's, um, you know, not only involvement, but plan for this to happen. So, so this is what is currently going on in Israel. Um, it has been little studied in academia, which implicates um, Ashkenazi academia, so mostly European Jews in academia, um, and is itself kind of a a source of uh, dispute. So, yeah, so that's the story. I wonder what, you know, if you find it interesting or what questions you might have. But well, yeah. what happened to the children? Mm. So, um, the speculation is that they were um, given up for adoption, um, mostly for Holocaust survivors who, because of all kinds of experiments, um, became barren. And so, you know, People reject this assumption by saying, oh, it would be very, very obvious if you gave a Yemenite child to um, mm -hmm. an Ashkenazi family. But by, by now, um, DNA has revealed mm. some of those kids who are now not kids at all as um, actually coming from Yemenite families that no one had suspected throughout their entire life. Um, so it so is. So the adoptive families didn't know. Is the, oh, is some the of the parents knew and didn't tell the children. Okay. And some of the parents, you know, say that they didn't know where the okay. um, adopted children come from. And there are not a lot of cases where um, there were successful DNA matches because the, it's hard to get people to to do that. A lot of them don't know that they're adopted. Um, a lot of built-in complexity. It's so interesting, though, because, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of history of states intervening and redistributing children right. <laughs> with nefarious ends, right? Yeah. Even if the intentions were, let's be very generous and say, not purely evil, right? And so it seems a kind of well-trodden yeah. path, right? The British state sends right. a bunch of 
poor working class children to Australia, they end up being abused and worked to death on farms in the outback, right? Like it's it's a well-trodden path. So the idea that it's a kind of secret has to be an extra secret conspiracy. Interesting. Yeah. You know, um, there's a woman at UCI who has a couple of projects that relate to this. Um, Anita Casabantes Bradford has a really wonderful book on um, the symbolism of political symbolism of, and uses of the child in Cuba. So she's got a book called The Revolution is for the Children, The Politics of Childhood in Havana and Miami. Um, and she's now working on a, a book on Suffer the Children, Unaccompanied Child Migrants, and the Geopolitics of Compassion. Um, so, I mean, I think that there's an interesting, you know, uh, this is like a thing that pops up in many contexts, and it would be interesting to kind of explore the, um, you know, figure of the child and and how that's being deployed by different actors yeah. in this battle. No, it definitely, you know, it happened in a lot of colonial contexts. Um, here, you can think about, you know, Native American kids mm -hmm. who are being re-educated in yeah. um, boarding schools. Um, in the Australian context, there's also um, Aboriginal kids yeah. who are the disappeared generation. I'm sorry, I can't remember the actual term, but, mm. you know, there, there is a similar story. So. Um, there's definitely a comparative project that is, um, you know, would be interesting here. Um, I mean, so I, I also want to say that I brought this as an example of a conspiracy theory, not because I think it's false, but rather because um, the emphasis that I see here on conspiracy being about design mm -hmm. and um, recognizing that. So I mean, we can also talk about this not on the podcast, but my fourth chapter in the book that just came out, um, is about rumors of the state burning files in the state archive on women who were raped during the war in 1971 in Bangladesh. And there are sort of three versions of this rumor, and each of them insists that it's always a sovereign who burns the files. Hmm. Um, and the, you know, the version I got from the first archivist when I went to him, I was like, I have these <laughs> crazy rumors, and also I don't have access to this archive. I go every day. They never give me permission to, to go into these files. He gave me a third version, which was like the state's version, which was an utterly mundane, unconspiratorial right. one, which is that um, there was a guy in town who like dealt in bulk paper and would pulp it, and like janitors noticed that no one was touching all these files down in the secretariat after the war, and they were just like selling off tons and tons of paper. Um, and had no idea what the contents were, these are like illiterate people, and that it was entirely a mundane, um, accidental mm -hmm. occasion of greed, and not about like the acts of a sovereign. So I think that like the question of like the archive and yeah. violence and the like, what the state will do to if if not to protect itself, then to produce a narrative about itself mm -hmm. is essential, right? Because the archive becomes, of course, like the hallowed site of like state narrative and its conception of itself. Yeah, and so in this case too, um, the explanations that are provided by the state, if they are provided at all, are are of this mundane kind. Oh, maybe just a few kids. Mm -hmm. um, there was chaos. It was the early days of the state. Um, you know, oh, maybe it was just a matter of this particular nurse or this particular doctor, but. Um, what the state is refusing is precisely um, the systematicity of it. Maybe I just made up a word, but it's a good word. Like um, and, and yeah, and the archive is the other thing. And I don't think there will ever be a smoking gun in a context where the state controls what is being documented and what of that becomes available to the public. Um, and so it's a really interesting tension between how the activists wish for that smoking gun, mm -hmm. and it's a very impossibility by the very structure of um, the state archive. Lenore, we promise not to discuss your conspiracy theory and okay. broker agreement. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, this is great. For more installments from the Truth RRG, or for other UCHRI podcasts, visit us at iTunes, SoundCloud, or at our online platform, uchri.org slash foundry.